0: Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And if you would, please stand with me, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word. Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. I appreciate your prayers for me as I preach this passage. It's a heavy passage, one that I have wrestled with a lot this week. So I appreciate your prayers for me as I bring God's word to you this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we approach this passage, we thank you for your tender mercies. We who are sinners do not deserve your grace. And even as believers, we stumble and fall far too often. We thank you for loving us, for strengthening us. We ask that you help us come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would help us to love one another as you love us, that you would kill our pride, that we would esteem others above ourselves, not to esteem ourselves, and that we would have unity as a family of God. Thank you, Father, for your word. I ask that you would strengthen me as I give this message, and then it would be your words and not my own. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and it's in your most holy name that we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Throughout history, there has been a long line of godly men who have forsaken their own pleasure for the sake of the gospel. And these men, out of a love for their fellow believers, have laid down their pride, and their position, and their power in order that they might serve the body of Christ, thus demonstrating their love for God and effectively loving the church. One such great man is the great Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford. A scholar, preacher, writer, Rutherford lived from 1600 to 1661. He joined the Scottish Covenanters in 1638, a group who bravely stood for biblical truth against the tyranny of the English king, Charles I. Rutherford was a member of the Westminster Assembly in 1643 and also president of St. Andrew's Seminary in Scotland. Rutherford's writings are some of the best theological work. Ever produced. No less a figure than Charles Spurgeon described Rutherford's letters as, quote, the nearest thing to inspiration which can be found in all the writings of mere men, unquote. High praise indeed from someone like Spurgeon. At the end of his life, uh, Rutherford was accused by King Charles II of treason, and he was removed from the university due to Rutherford's adherence to biblical doctrine. And rather than submit to the king's demands, Rutherford gladly laid aside his position and power for the sake of gospel truth. Rutherford died before he could be tried and executed. Uh, Rutherford's life is a testament to his scriptural, scriptural commitment, his love for the church, and his abandonment of pride. He truly fulfilled the law of Christ in his life. And a quote from one of his sermons is a wonderful summary Of our passage today from Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Rutherford writes, Let us learn then to know that this is a mark of such as are in love with Christ. They think less of themselves than they can do of any other. Pride is not a mark of the children of God. In our passage this morning from Galatians 6, 1 through 5, we will investigate three different words that should help you fulfill the law of Christ in your life by killing the pride in your heart and by loving your brothers in Christ. Now, to properly understand this passage in Galatians 6, 1 through 5, we need to understand the context of the passage. And last week, Matt preached the end of Galatians chapter 5, where we learned about walking by the Spirit. And Matt contrasted the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit— And we saw in Galatians 5.25 that if we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then to do that, we are warned in Galatians 5.26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. As Matt mentioned last week, uh, some commentators believe that this verse at the end of chapter 5 begins a new thought and it is better situated in chapter 6 than with chapter 5. And I actually think it's a bridge. I think it's kind of both. It fits well with both passages. It's a bridge between chapter 5 and chapter 6 and provides the context for chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. Galatians 6 provides applications for the truths so that Paul is teaching in chapter 5. In Galatians 5.25, we're told to walk by the Spirit. And in Galatians 5.26, we are given a negative example of what to avoid in order that we might walk in the Spirit. If you're to walk in the Spirit, you must not become boastful. To be boastful means to be falsely proud. Such a person is led by his sinful pride and not by the Holy Spirit. Pride is a deadly sin. It is the root of all sin. Satan was lifted up by his pride, causing him to rebel against God. Adam and Eve's sin was motivated by pride, for they thought that they knew better than God. And today, such pride is the root of dissension and quarrels. It leads to fighting that breaks apart the unity of the church. Such pride also promotes envy and jealousy. Pride is the root of envy. I mean, as an illustration, let's say your neighbor drives home uh, with a bright red sports car. You see it and you think, well, why does my neighbor get such a nice car? I should have such a nice car. What you're saying is that you think you deserve such a car. Maybe it's due to how hard you work or what you've had to face in life or if you just really, really like that car. Those are all expressions of pride. Instead of realizing who we are in God's economy, a totally depraved sinner who deserves eternal judgment, the boastful think that, Somehow that they are special. Instead of being thankful for the sustaining grace of God that allows them to draw their every breath, they think that they deserve more. That is pride. And such pride will destroy your spiritual walk. It will also destroy the unity of the church. And it is not the mark of a Christian community. And this is Paul's point in Galatians 5.26. So as we begin chapter 6, we must understand this backdrop. Now, Paul starts out in chapter 6, verse 1, with a familiar word, adelphoi, which is translated as brethren or brothers. He's addressing fellow believers, the members of this church, and this this word conveys a familial tone. We are a family, and as a family, we should not be boastful or envious or involved in constant arguments. We're not to challenge one another or to seek superiority. No, instead of mutual envy and provocation, we are to seek mutual love And support, and Paul is setting up the next portion of verse 1. He writes, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And here we come to the first word in our passage that should help you kill your pride and also fulfill the law of Christ. And that word is restore. Restore. To fulfill the law of Christ and kill pride, we are to practice restoration. So what does this mean? Well, let's break down the verse. The anyone in the verse refers to believers. The context is the word brethren at the beginning of the verse. So Paul is not giving instructions for dealing with everyone in the whole world. Paul is not saying, well, you know, you need to, you need to focus on unbelievers. No, what he's talking about is believers here and our relationships with believers, the context defines the anyone here as believers. And in terms in scripture, such as anyone and all, everyone, world, etc., they're always defined by their context. And it's important to understand the context to correctly interpret scripture. Indeed, it has been well stated that a text without a context is simply a pretext for a proof text. Let me say that again. A text without a context is simply a pretext to proof text. And no, I didn't invent that term. I wish I had. It's it's very catchy, but it's also very true. So here, looking at the context of the word anyone informs our understanding that Paul is speaking about believers who have been caught in a trespass. Now, the word trespass speaks of a transgression or sin. To be caught in a trespass does not mean that they're caught red-handed in the act of sinning. Instead, it it speaks of someone becoming entangled in sin. The sin grabs them and catches them. The term has the basic idea of stumbling or falling as you're walking along and your foot gets caught by a a rock or a tree branch and you fall over. All right, that's what it's discussing here. Um, It might be that the, the person does not commit the sin with premeditation, but rather he just simply fails to be on his guard or perhaps flirts with temptation that he thinks that he can withstand. And a common form of sin is simply trying to live life in the strength of our own power and not according to the Holy Spirit, as Paul instructed us to do in chapter 5, verse 25, the context for this passage. When we do not live by the Spirit, we always fail and we produce deeds of the flesh instead of fruits of the Spirit. Now, please do not think that Paul is excusing sin when he's saying that the believer is stumbling into sin and being caught by sin. Such ensnarement only occurs when the believer is not living by the spirit and is instead living according to his own strength. Now again, remember the context of verse 26. A believer who lives according to his own strength is demonstrating a sinful attitude of pride. So while this verse applies to any form of sin that reaches out and catches a believer, it specifically addresses the root sin of pride. As an illustration, take the story of, found in Joshua chapter 7. We all know the story. The children of Israel suffer defeat at Ai. Why? Why do they suffer defeat at the city of Ai? Well, they go up. They rely on their own strength. They don't consult the Lord before going up. There's sin in the camp, and they lose many soldiers. Pride is the root of every form of sin because it's doing something in our strength and not in the strength of the Lord. And this was convicting for me this week as I was preparing this passage, um, as I was going through the passage, I realized um, how much it applied to myself as I was preparing the sermon. Uh, I realized that I had gotten down and started looking at the different words and commentaries and verses, um, and I hadn't began with prayer, and I had to confess that and repent because I was doing this in my own strength and not in the strength of the Lord. So it's something that we all need to pay attention to in our lives. Now, what's the remedy for this? What's the remedy for being caught in sin? Well, Paul commands, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now, before we describe restoration, what does he mean by the phrase, you who are spiritual? Is Paul speaking of some special group of believers, some high class elite Christians, you know, the cream of the crop? You know, some take, some denominations take this verse to mean that. However, Paul is not dividing the Galatian church into the the spiritual and non-spiritual Christians. Such a division would contradict Paul's overall argument to this passage. When he says spiritual, he's referring to those who have been filled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, anyone who has been saved by Christ. Throughout this uh, epistle, Paul repeatedly speaks of believers as those who have received the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6, Paul declares, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This means the term that you who are spiritual in, in chapter 6, verse 1, speaks of all believers, not just an elite group that consists of the pastor or the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers. And this has major implications for each one of you sitting in this room if you are a Christian. You are the one to whom Paul is addressing this statement. If you are a Christian, you are to restore a brother who has been caught in sin. And what does it mean to restore a fellow believer? Well, the term restore has the connotation of a fisherman mending his nets. Or a doctor who's setting a bone into place. It means to fix or to heal something. You are to restore Fix or heal a brother who has been caught in sin. Paul is undoubtedly here hearkening back to Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17. Keep your place in Galatians. Turn back with me to Matthew 15 verses 18 through 17. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17. In this passage, we're given instructions on how to conduct church discipline. Now, church discipline is often overlooked in the modern church with disastrous effect. Yet it is vital to the health, health of the church and, and foundational to the, the history of the church. Indeed, Matthew 18 is actually the first time that we see the word church in the New Testament. And it's placed within the context of church discipline. So if you would, look with me at Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have one, your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice the similarity between verse 15 in Matthew and Galatians 6.1. We see Matthew refers to a brother who sins just as Paul describes in his epistle. Now note that there's a three-step process for church discipline. First, if you know a Christian brother is sinning, you're to go to him privately and show him his fault. This does not mean you're to go talk to someone else about the issue. You're not to go gossip to a friend, a deacon, an elder, and, and ask them to go speak to this person instead of you. By doing so, you would be violating God's command and would be sinning yourself. Your duty as a believer is to go speak to the sinning brother face to face. You're not to send a letter, a text, an email. Go speak with the offender in person, in private. Then if that fails, the offender refuses to repent, then you get someone else involved. Generally, this is when you should reach out to an elder or to a pastor And if the three of you are unable to bring this person to repentance, then you should bring the matter to the church. And if the person still refuses to repent, the church is to treat the offender as a Gentile, meaning to treat the person as an unbeliever, someone who is outside the family of God for the purpose of correction. Now, we could spend an entire sermon going more into this in Matthew 18, but that's not our text for today. But I want you to see how Matthew 18 is foundational to Galatians 6.1. We're told by Paul that believers are to restore a sinning brother. And in Matthew eighteen fifteen, Jesus describes such restoration by declaring that you have won your brother. Jesus is prescribing proper church discipline. In a healthy church, it will not be uncommon. Unfortunately, we tend to view church discipline as some sort of very formal event. But it should happen very frequently in, in a healthy church. I cannot describe the number of times that I have sinned and been corrected by a brother or sister in Christ. And the most frequent frequent correction, uh, the person who corrects me most frequently, is my wife because she sees me at my worst. And her telling me, Jeremy, you shouldn't get frustrated at the traffic. It's California after all. That's a form of church discipline because not only is she my wife, she's my sister in Christ. And as such, when she privately shows me my fault, I have the opportunity to repent and be restored. Now, sometimes she has to show me my fault several times, especially if the traffic gets worse and worse, but she's patient with me. And, and, and 99% of church discipline should never get past this private conversation. And each step should not be a rushed thing. Give time for your brother or sister to repent. This is the purpose of such disciplinary procedures, and it's always remedial. It's never punitive. We should never exercise church discipline to get rid of the problem child. We should never exercise church discipline with the goal of kicking someone out of the church to remove them from a position simply because we harbor a grudge against them. Concerning the disobedient brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.15 tells us to not regard him as an enemy, but to admonish him as a brother. See, we should never correct a brother's sin with hostility. That's not the goal of church discipline. And this is why Paul declares in Galatians 6.1 that restoring a brother is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. And as we read last week in Galatians 5.23, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. The word gentleness connotes a submissive and teachable attitude towards God, and it manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration towards others. Such an attitude is not a wimpish weakness as so commonly viewed by the world. Gentleness is the exact opposite of pride. It's grounded in humility. Gentleness is submission to God's law. So when you restore in the spirit of gentleness, you're restoring a fallen brother with humility. You're not restoring in order to boast in your spiritual prowess, or as a pretext to gain some sort of authority. You are to restore gently, humbly, because this is the mark of someone who has been called by God. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Paul is speaking of those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit in this passage, And we can see parallels in this passage to Galatians 6, 1, the mark of someone who has been chosen by God to be raised up to eternal life is gentleness and compassion, especially in relationship to fellow believers. Notice how Paul begins in Colossians 3, verse 12. He says, so that those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Incredible. The mark of being a believer, being called and chosen of God to salvation is humility, gentleness, compassion, and forgiveness. All these characteristics are to be exercised towards those with whom you might have a complaint, an argument, or to quote Galatians 6.1, anyone caught in any trespass. Now, don't turn here for the sake of time, but Paul writes in similar language in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. As someone called by God to be his child, you must bear with your brethren in humility and gentleness. When you restore a believer caught in sin, it is to be done with gentleness and care, not with boasting or pride. Regarding restoring a fallen brother, Martin Luther declared that we are to, quote, "...run unto him, reaching out your your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms," unquote. Such is the tenderness that we are to restore a brother or sister in Christ. Turn back with me to Galatians chapter chapter 6, verse 1. True restoration is a defense against pride. Look at the end of verse 1 with me. You are to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So you see, true humility is demonstrated by acknowledging our own sinfulness. Without the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we too would need such restoration. We are to look to ourselves to ensure that we don't fall victim to the same temptation that we are seeking to heal in our fallen brother. True restoration then kills our pride and as we will soon see it is part of fulfilling the law of Christ. So our first word to kill pride and fulfill the law of Christ is restore. and The second word is bear. To bear conveys the thought of Carrying something with, with endurance, or to lift a heavy late, uh, a heavy weight. Pardon me. We're to bear one another's burdens, as with the word "anyone" found in verse one. The context limits the term "one another" to believers. We're to lift or carry the burdens of our fellow believers. The burdens described here could be a general burden. The word for burden literally means a heavy weight or stone that someone is required to carry over a long distance. Now that doesn't mean you have to go to the gym with Ileon and help him lift up his weights. I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. No, that's not what it's talking about here. This is a figurative sense of the term. Figuratively, the word uh, came to mean an oppressive ordeal or hardship that is difficult to bear. Some commentators argue that Paul's command speaks of Christians carrying the daily burdens of their fellow believers. And while I'm certainly not discouraging you from desiring to aid your brother in Christ, in the context of this verse, it's not speaking of general assistance. In context, the reference suggests burdens that tempt the believer to fall back into the trespass from which they had just been restored. A persistent oppressive sin is one of the heaviest burdens that a Christian can bear. Thus, restoration is not simply a one-time event. It's not done simply to condemn or to rebuke a brother. Instead, true restoration must be paired with bearing the burden of the brother caught in a trespass. Do not seek to restore a fallen believer if you're not willing to also go alongside and help them bear that burden. Now again, such assistance is not limited to a one-time act. Remember, the definition of bear is to carry with endurance. If you're going to restore a fallen brother, you must also bear their burden with endurance. You're in it for the long haul. And if you bear one another's burdens by doing so, Paul declares that you will fulfill the law of Christ. Restoring a brother and bearing their burden with endurance is the means by which you will fulfill Christ's law. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait, wait one second, Jeremy. The whole point of Galatians is that we're saved by faith, not by the law. I mean, doesn't Galatians 3.10 declare that those who are of the works of the law are under a curse? Doesn't verse 23 of the same chapter say that before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law? Last week, didn't we read Galatians 5.18? If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why does Paul speak of fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing each other's burdens? What's he talking about here? Well, again, we need to look at the context to determine what this verse means. The term law of Christ is only used twice in Scripture. It's used here, and Paul uses it again in 1 Corinthians 9.21. There, it is used in contrast to the law of Moses. However, although both Galatians 1 and 1 Corinthians uh, were written by Paul... We must first look to Galatians, and specifically to the passages immediately surrounding Galatians 6 verse 2, in order to find our proper context. So when determining a passage's context, start small and work your way out. Start with the verses immediately around your passage, and then maybe the chapter that you're looking at, then the rest of the book, and then the rest of the books written by the same author, so all of Paul's epistles, and then maybe the type of literature, uh, so the rest of the epistles, like John's epistle, James, etc., and then finally look at the entirety of scripture to determine your context. We've already observed that Paul refers to the law in Galatians 3.10, 3.23. He's speaking of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the works of the law. In Galatians 5.18, we see that if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So those who are spiritual, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, living by the spirit are not under the law. Using the context of Galatians 6.1, who was Paul addressing in this passage? He's addressing those who are spiritual, the same people in 5.18 who are being led by the spirit and are thus not under the law. So if the law of Christ is in some way different to the law referenced in 5.18, what is the law of Christ? Well, chapter 5, verse 14, look back just at chapter 5, verse 14, it describes this law. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of Christ. The law of Christ is fulfilled by one word, and that is love. Because Christ has loved us, we are filled with his love, and thus can love others. Now we're going to take a brief detour to discuss the word fulfill. When we use the word fulfill, it means filling up to the superlative sense, speaking to the maximum level. To fulfill means to achieve the greatest example possible. It doesn't always mean to complete or end something. So in the same manner, when we fulfill the law of Christ, we are demonstrating to the maximum level Christ's command to love our neighbor. We are bearing one another's burdens, and by doing so, we are achieving this love in a manner that is the greatest possible example of Christ's law. Yet even this is not complete, for we await the day when we have glorified bodies, completely sanctified, free from the power and the presence of sin. And on that day, We can perfectly love one another and thus completely fulfill the law of Christ. Until then, the way to fulfill the law of Christ is to love one another by bearing each other's burdens. Loving one another is also a means of killing pride, the pride that inhibits and and inhabits your flesh. Pride lurks in the dark recesses of our hearts, the old man who we must constantly battle. Yet having Christ's love for others is the best remedy for pride. Pride is the love of self, whereas the love of Christ is the love for others because we love God. The great Scottish Puritan Henry Scougal, whose works inspired George Whitfield in the Great Awakening, captures this truth perfectly in his book *Life of God and the Soul of Man*. And Scougal writes this: quote, "Perfect love is a kind of self dereliction, a wandering out of ourselves." It is a kind of voluntary death, wherein the lover dies to himself and all his own interests, not thinking of them nor caring for them anymore, and minding nothing but how he may please and gratify the party whom he loves, Unquote. Fulfilling the law of Christ then must include both a negative and a positive sense. Negatively, um, that we kill our pride and die to ourselves positively in that we we mind and care only about how we might love others and by doing so love God now such a realization leads us to our third and final word highlighted by Paul in our passage our final word is examine we must examine ourselves to root out our pride and see if we have the love of Christ in our lives note Galatians chapter 6 verse 3 it says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, at first glance, this verse, along with verses 4 through 5, they seem to be out of place in context with verse 2. However, this verse continues Paul's ongoing polemic against pride, which prevents the believer from restoring the fallen brother in love and prevents him from fulfilling the law of Christ. Such love it must be free from the defilement of pride. It is impossible to love one another in pride, for pride is the expression of self-love. Self-love is when someone thinks he is something when he is nothing. It is the opposite of fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, the world often extols the supposed virtues of self-love and self-esteem. We're told that the problem with young people today is that they lack self-esteem. We're told that low self-esteem is the root of suicide, and that if we can simply fix the problem of low self-esteem, we can solve this terrible blight in our society. However, this is an unbiblical view, and it stands in contrast to what Scripture teaches. So to esteem means to hold in reverence. Self-esteem, then, means to hold up yourself in reverence, to revere yourself. But the Bible never instructs us, instructs us to love ourselves, does it? I mean, no, what does Galatians 5.14 say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The world takes this and then says, well, see, God is saying love yourself. It's a good thing. It's like, no, this is the exact opposite of what the command is saying. You don't need to work on loving yourself. You do that too much already. Why? Because you're a fallen sinner filled with pride. And so am I. Pride is to esteem yourself as something important enough to hold up in reverence. But what does Paul tell us, for example, in Philippians 2, 3 through 4? In loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let not every man on his own things, but let every man also look on the things of others. Philippians, again, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. The only self-esteem problem that this generation has, or any generation has, is that it holds itself in too much regard, not too little. I won't speak to you of Pride Month or its associated debauchery. This church knows that such activity is an expression of sinful pride. We don't need to talk about that. We're all on the same page. Instead, let me prove to you the danger of low self-esteem. And this is something that some of you may have faced with your family or friends. And We must be equipped to deal with this issue when someone says that they have, quote, low self-esteem. And to do that, I'm going to be arguing from what the world describes as the Worst expression of low self esteem. I am speaking, of course, of the scourge of suicide that is plaguing the West. The person who feels hopeless and opens the bottle of pills or takes out the gun is not doing so because they love themselves too little. No, suicide is the deadly result of having an exalted view of who you are and what you think you deserve in life. Such a person does not hate themselves. They hate the current state of their lives, which then causes hopelessness and despair. Now, let me speak to you from my heart for a moment. This is an issue that is very close to my heart because it's something that I faced far too often when I was in the military. And when my unit returned from a a nine-month rotation to Korea, my brigade, we led the military in suicides in the months following our return from Korea. It was a huge problem. A year later, we had a young soldier commit suicide in front of the entire unit just when we were up training at Fort Irwin. And as a leader, I had to guide my soldiers through that tragedy. And so when I talk about this issue, it's very, very personal. When a person commits suicide, they do so because their life does not match their expectations that they have set for themselves. They believe that they deserve better than their current circumstances. And because their circumstances do not match their expectations, they become hopeless. Such despair stems from the sin of pride. To quote Thomas Boston, great p- preacher, pride of heart overlooks and vilifies mercies one is possessed of and fixes the eye on what is wanting in one's condition. And perhaps that's someone listening this morning. You've overlooked the wondrous mercies of God and have been obsessed with something that you deem wrong or a problem in your life. And if so, I urge you, stay with me as we look through scripture, when it says about God's mercy towards you and about how to kill the pride in your life. You will find that the mercies of God far outweigh any problem that you might be dealing with or any failed expectations that you might have. You see, scripture says that God has ordained all things, that he works all things after the counsel of his will, that he is sovereign over history. And the claim that you know better than God is the height of hubris. It is a deadly sin of pride rearing its ugly head. And unless this sin is dealt with, hopelessness will come up and grab you and not let go. It is an expression of pride to think that you deserve anything other than the eternal wrath of God as judgment for your sins. The fact that any of us can experience pleasure, think rationally, or simply draw our next breath is only due to the long suffering grace of God. You see, when we view ourselves properly, we recognize that there is no room for self-esteem. Once you come to this realization, you cannot help but be overcome by thankfulness towards an almighty, all-knowing, and all-merciful God. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. The apostle Paul views himself as the worst sinner, the least worthy. Philippians 3.3, 3. Paul declares that we who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus put no confidence in our flesh. We have no reason to boast. We have no reason for pride or self-esteem. Paul did not glory in his achievements or his accomplishments. And if anyone had the right to do so, it was Paul, the most brilliant theological mind who, who kept the law down to its very finest detail. Just a few verses down in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Paul drives a stake through the heart of self-esteem. And I'm going to read from the King James Version as I believe it best captures the forcefulness of Paul's words here. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, if you want to follow along. Paul says these things. He says, But what things were gained to me I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I I may win Christ. See, Paul counted everything that he did as but dung, excrement, rubbish, fit only to be thrown in the garbage dump and burned. Why? Because he realized that without Christ, he was simply a degenerate, depraved, despicable sinner, a spiritual rebel, a self-deceived reprobate. And in our text in Galatians 6.3, anyone who thinks he is something when he is nothing is simply self-deceived. We are all nothings. We have no goodness to endear ourselves to God. No, there, no redeeming quality to prompt God to send his only son to die a criminal's death. I mean, think for a moment of the great indictment that Paul makes against, the, against all humanity in, in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, there's none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing. He goes on and on and on. It is an exhaustive list. And yet, despite his total depravity, the unsaved man still boasts in himself. How is this so? Or take the claim that some men make that, oh, I hate myself. He commits some grievous sin and he says, oh, I can't believe I did such a thing. I hate myself. Well, such a statement is not humble. It is prideful. Why? Because the statement should not be, I can't believe I did such a thing. But rather, I can't believe that God's common grace has restrained me, an unregenerate sinner, from committing a far more grievous sin. It is pride that makes us forget our natural fallen condition. Without the grace of God, that is where we all would be. And the only way to end, end the endemic of, uh, epidemic of hopelessness and despair in our society, which is going to get far worse as we continue moving forward, is not to deceive ourselves, but instead kill the pride that is the source of these feelings. The pride-killing prescription is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer who has friends and family battling with what the world calls low self-esteem, the cure is not to tell them how wonderful they are, how special they are. No, it is to extol the majesty and glory of Christ. They can be saved from their despair because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And you must exhort them that believers have been declared righteous by the work of Christ and not by our, their own work. Remind the desperate there is, that there is nothing in us that causes Christ to come lay down his life for us. It was not that they are so special that God couldn't just bear to have heaven without them. No, it is, it is instead due to the glory that God has when he loves his children when we were unlovable. You were not Saved by God because of your own goodness, your own wisdom, your own choice. No, you have been saved solely due to the unmerited grace of God. And denying him this honor is a sinful consequence of a prideful heart. Extolling the glory of his grace is the pride-killing prescription necessary to restore hope in the brokenhearted. And when we share the gospel, we demonstrate that we are loving others instead of loving ourselves, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. But we must take care, lest we be filled with pride at our role in the proclamation of the gospel. We are merely instruments in the Redeemer's hands, vessels fitted for his use. Thus, we must truly examine ourselves, as Paul did in Philippians 3, and then what he instructs us to do in Galatians 6, 4. Look with me at Galatians chapter 6, verse 4. Continuing in verse 4, Paul declares, But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Paul tells the Christian to examine himself, to examine his own work. You are not to compare yourself with another person. When a believer restores a brother and bears another's burdens, the natural tendency is to regard the other person's failings and then boast in yourself. This is why Paul wrote in verse one, to look to yourself Lest in your pride you think you are too spiritual to face a similar temptation. Instead of regarding another's work, we are to examine ourselves. Paul declares that if we do this, then we will have reason for boasting. Now, such a statement seems counter to the rest of Paul's argument against pride. I mean, doesn't Galatians 5.26 tell us not to become boastful? Is Paul contradicting himself in the space of five verses? No, no, he's not. We see Paul's well-documented sarcasm displayed clearly in this verse. If you truly examine your work and you will see that what you have have accomplished is solely due to the work of God, the grace of God. Any good that you do is the result of the Holy Spirit sanctifying your life, not the result of your own flesh. True self-examination reveals that we can only boast in the cross. What does Paul declare just 10 verses later? Galatians six fourteen. Just go down a few verses, Galatians six fourteen. Look at the, this, uh, this verse that Paul says. He says, but may it may, never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the Christian is one who has been crucified to the world. Our pride, our self-esteem, our boasting, it's been crucified with our flesh. Our only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. We do not regard another's perceived inadequate work as a reason for boasting. We cannot compare ourselves to others. No, the standard is Christ. And without his grace, we all fall far, far short. On judgment day, you will not be able to point to your neighbor and gain God's favor by comparing your work. And this is the point of verse 5. A cursory reading of Galatians 6, five seems to be a contradiction of verse 2. If we're to bear one another's burdens in verse two, why does verse five say that each one will bear his own load? Well, note that verse two uses the word burden while verse five uses the word load. They're two different terms, two different meanings. Verse two describes helping a fellow believer struggle against temptation. Verse five speaks of bearing the load of our actions on judgment day. Now the phrase will bear in Galatians 6, 5 actually harkens back to chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul declares the one who is disturbing you will bear his own judgment. Same term, same words. Both verses are speaking of the final day of judgment. On that day, believers will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And although we've been saved from the eternal wrath of God through the work of Christ, our works will still be tested by our king. We read about that in 1 Corinthians three, thirteen through fifteen, where Paul talks about each work, each man's work will become evident on that day. It will show because it's been revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So to test is the same Greek word as examine. In Galatians six four, we are to examine our works because one day they will be examined by the Most High Judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Far too many Christians live in a sort of spiritual stupor never examining their own works. Yet scripture abounds with warnings to do so. We think of Paul's warning here, or 2 Corinthians thirteen five: test yourself to see if you're in the faith, prove your own selves. Testing our works has the dual purpose of testing our faith to see if we are truly in Christ. See, the works of a redeemed person will demonstrate that they are a life that has been radically changed by the gospel. It is a life through which God's love is poured out upon the members of the church, Now, these works don't save you. They merely demonstrate that you have been given a a regenerated heart. So examine yourself. See if you are restoring a fallen brother due to a desire to lovingly, lovingly bear his burdens or if it's merely an attempt to be boastful and to exalt yourself. Fulfilling the law of Christ is deeper than merely helping a fellow believer. It gets to the root of why we bear one another's burdens. This is why to fulfill the law of Christ, not simply to restore or bear, but to fulfill the law of Christ in love. So this leads us to reflect on what we've read in our passage today, and it should prompt us all to self-reflection. Search your hearts. Do your works demonstrate a love for others or a love for yourself? On judgment day, will your works be found out to be rooted in pride and self-aggrandizing? Or will they be found to be founded on love that comes from your position in Christ? What is the motivation behind your interaction with your fellow believers? Have you killed the pride in your life? Now an honest answer must be no, for it's a lifelong war that we wage against our sinful pride. Do you esteem yourself rather than your Christian family? Are you self-deceived, thinking that you are something when you're really nothing? One day your works will be laid bare before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you restored your brother who's been ensnared by sin? Do you bear one another's burdens with love? Have you examined yourself to ensure that you're doing so out of love and not out of some sort of boasting? Have you killed the pride in your heart? Have you esteemed yourself so low that you count all things but dung, but waste, but excrement when compared to the excellencies of him who has saved you? You boast only in the cross of Christ. Have you fulfilled the law of Christ? These are the questions that Paul wants us to wrestle with as we reflect upon this passage. And I pray that you will do so the rest of the morning as we sing our next song about uniting our hearts together in Christian love. Let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your tender mercies and your grace. And I ask that you would help your word pierce the hearts of all who listen today, pierce my heart. May it smite any shred of pride that it finds hiding in our hearts. May it inspire us to love one another, restoring one another when we fall and bearing each other's burdens. May we fulfill the law of Christ for your honor and your glory. May each person here reflect on the truth of your word. It is in your hallowed name that we pray. Amen.